0: Revelation 1, beginning with verse 9, and we're going to look at one verse here before we begin, of course, and uh, see it as our diving board right into our study tonight. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Was on the isle that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, you know a lot has been written in commentaries and books about the apostle John and his arriving at what would be considered a an odd place to receive a revelation of Jesus Christ on, on an island off the the, the coast of Asia Minor, but especially since John had been an an eyewitness, he had been a a participant and a partaker of the earthly ministry of Jesus. In his first letter to the church, now, you notice it's all up on one thing, there are all three verses there, it's not for you to look at, uh, it's just so you can see the top title, so you can look at it in your Bibles, okay, all right. So, you see that it says, that which was from the beginning. John writes this first letter to the church. And he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. But that was exactly why he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was on the Isle of Patmos because of the testimony that he had of Jesus Christ. And he preached that testimony, and he preached that in his life, and he preached it with his words, and he preached it as as that which, uh, you know, I, I have touched, I've handled Christ, I've seen him, I've known him, I've walked with him, I've eaten with him, but now he's on this island, and why is he there? First of all, let's look at where Patmos is, you know, I didn't bring my little pointer, I think I have one here. There it is, Patmos. You all got it. All the fun toys I get to play with on Wednesday night. He was there for the word of God. This is what he says in Revelation. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was on that island. You would think, well, you know, it, it looks relatively nice to be in a, the Greek islands, you know. We all see those commercials about all those those. Uh, uh, what do you call them, the ships that go out there, and cruises and, and all of that. This was no cruise. He was on this small island on the Aegean Sea, southwest of Ephesus, and between Asia Minor and Greece, as a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Rome following his effective pastorate at Ephesus. Now we know, and we go back in Scripture, that, uh, that Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus first of all. But later on, and of course John, being, being uh, the apostle who lived the longest, uh, some believe that he was 100 when he, when he finally died, but, but uh, he eventually would, uh, would be pastoring in that region of Ephesus and in Ephesus itself and throughout all of that uh, region called uh, you know, Asia Minor, John was known. Everybody knew him because he was the apostle that Jesus loved, that Jesus knew. But he was a prisoner of Rome, and, and, and something else to think about, um, and, and we're going to kind of touch upon that as we look at the, the time frame of, uh, at least the daily time frame of, of John when he, when he tells of, of that vision. But they used to have a day in Rome called Emperor Day. Emperor's Day. And, and, and that was actually what they called the first day of the week. They always gave you know, homage and praise to Caesar. So it was Emperor's Day on that first day of the week. What do we know has happened to the church now after Christ has come? The church began to meet on the first day of the week. But it isn't that they called it Emperor's Day, they called it the Lord's Day. And that title, we don't really truly get it, the first time we actually see it is is here in the book of Revelation but uh, and i I'm, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself but but the point is that if you didn't give praise to Caesar, then you were committing treason, as it were, if you lived in the Roman Empire. so what did they do on the first day of the week? They worshiped Jesus, they praised the lord jesus they 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 exalted him, and so many of course of Uh, in the church were were arrested and put into prison hard labor for their love of Jesus Christ and John was one of these Uh, it's recorded by uh, a man named Victorinus the first commentator on the book of Revelation that uh, John worked as a prisoner in the mines on this small, small island which was mostly made up of volcanic rock and when Emperor Domitian died in 96 AD his successor Nerva let John return to Ephesus. So John wasn't on Patmos, you know, the rest of his life. He was there in exile up until the time that Domitian passed away. And then he was allowed to go back to Ephesus. But he wanted to make it clear, as we already heard in verse 9, that he was a brother and a companion with the churches of their day to tribulations. He was a companion and a brother with the churches, all the churches, to their daily tribulations, their trials, their afflictions, their persecutions, their sufferings, and even the pressure that they felt every day for being believers in a, in a society that didn't want any other uh, ruler but Caesar. But you can get outside of the Roman Empire and, uh, you know, the, uh, the apostles had to deal with other Uh, cultures and other societies and other gods, Paul in in Athens, walking through a, a place where they had all kinds of monuments resurrected to other gods, yet to us there's only one God and one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ. So daily John sought longingly after the kingdom of God with them. See, as believers in Jesus Christ, that's something that we need to take to heart, that we we need to seek the kingdom of God every day. Not just a place. We like to say the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven, and where God is, well, that's where we want to be, and certainly that is where we want to be. But the phrase the kingdom of God is much more than that in the scriptures. Because the word for a kingdom is the word for rule or reign. We need to seek after the reign of God in our lives every day. We need to seek after the rule of God in our lives every day. And that's more of the understanding that we see when the kingdom is mentioned as it is here. He sought longingly after the kingdom of God with them, with the church. Day by day he endured and he persevered against all trials and temptations with them, standing fast in the truth of the coming of Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus was coming again, just like Paul knew Jesus was coming again. And Peter knew Jesus was coming. Why? Because they had heard him say it. I'm coming again. I'm coming to receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you're going to be also. That was their hope in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that they were facing. And I'm sure that he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus as he spoke of things to come. And that Jesus would say in in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now why is this not working? And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But notice what they heard Jesus say. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He that endures unto the end shall be saved. You know, I couldn't find any photography of John on Patmos. I just want to make sure you're awake here. <laughs> I couldn't find any photography. That's kind of hard to see, but you'll, you'll notice uh, there's a, an older man right there. See him? That's John. With the lighting here, it's, it's just kind of hard to see. I wish we had better lighting for that. But, but you know, it, it looks like a dark place. It looks like a dark time. But it's in those darkest of times when we can see the vision of Jesus clearer than ever. It's in the darkest of times that we can see much clearly the vision of Jesus for us. It is when we find ourselves in our own Isle of Patmos that God's light and life and Christ's life and light shine brightly into our hearts as we draw closer and closer to Him. Well, John the Apostle begins his portion of the vision and revelation of Jesus Christ, which, which was directly given to him with a carefully worded phrase that links him with apocalyptic or prophetic writings of the Old Testament. But in particular, it is the prophet Daniel that he's linked with here. Because it is the simplest phrase that we see. He says, I, John, I, John, The only other person that, that speaks in that manner, even though it can be referred to in all the other prophets, but, but the one who says it clearly is, is Daniel. And there are in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel... Now remember, Daniel is an apoc- apocalyptic or a prophetic book. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem and then later on in chapter ten uh we see that that phrase again. It says in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing uh was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And then he says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Now John would, would use the phrase two more times near the end of the book. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me go back for just a second. But suffice it to say that we're entering into the prophetic landscape now of the book of, uh, the prophetic landscape of the New Testament with this passage. For John to say, I John saw, or I John did this or that. You know, he's, he's, he's declaring that we're going to be looking into the vision or the revelation of Jesus Christ. But remember that on a practical note, when we proclaim Jesus Christ, it isn't something that we're making up. We are simply revealing to people that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that God has been saying since the Garden of Eden. Can I repeat that thought? Because I'm just wondering if it's getting through. When we proclaim Jesus Christ, it isn't something we're making up. See, we have here the Word of God, don't we? Alright, we're not making this up. See, John wasn't making anything up because he made it very clear, I'm an eyewitness. And the eyewitness passes that, that vision on, and passes that word on, and then passes you know, the, 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 the letters on, and passes then the books gathered together, and then all of a sudden we have the Bible, and it's been passed down to us. Now we have been affected by that very same vision. So what we're giving to other people, we're not making up. Now there have been some who have been making up little things around the Word of God. That's not a good thing. That's why we have to, that's why we have to rightly divide the Word. But when we proclaim Jesus, it isn't something we're making up. We are simply revealing to the people that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Of everything God has been saying since the Garden of Eden. The Word of God is our foundation. Our testimony is that it describes salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And whenever we are, or wherever we are, and whatever we do, we do it all for the cause of Christ. John was on the Isle of Patmos for the cause of Christ. Wherever you are, you are for the cause of Christ. Where you work, where you live, what you do, you are there for the cause of Christ. You may be persecuted for your stand in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But wherever you are, you are there for the cause of Christ. Whether under arrest or whether under conviction, whether under anything, you are there for Christ. And this is what we need to understand about this heart of John. As he's receiving this vision. Let's look at verse 10 now. Of Revelation 1. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Oh, there's the mention of the Lord's day. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And, and what thou seest, now He's speaking to John. I am Alpha Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now, there has been quite a lot of discussion and argument as to whether the phrase, the Lord's Day, refers to the first day of the week, Sunday, or if it refers to a time period called in the Scriptures, the Day of the Lord. If if it refers to the latter, if it refers to the day of the Lord, then John was translated by the Spirit forward to that great future day of the Lord, which is the focal point of much of the prophecy of both the Old and the New Testaments. You all have heard of the phrase, the, the, the day of the Lord. We're going to study that phrase as we go through the book of Revelation, because it's going to come up a lot, especially during the time that we study the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation period. So, we're, you know, if, 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 if that phrase, the Lord's day, refers to the day of the Lord, as some believe today, and they teach this, then what happens is, John has been catapulted forward to this time. But the problem is, and there are serious problems with that interpretation, if John really meant the day of the Lord, he should have just said so. Because it's a prominent phrase in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It is a great day. It is an awesome day. It is a a terrible day. But it's called the day of the Lord. And if it was that, then he would have just said, this is the day of the Lord. Simply because because that's a much used phrase in the word of God, describing ominous occurrences of, of judgment by the Lord. The phrase, the Lord's day, is constructed quite differently. It means the day belonging to the Lord. It is the day belonging to the Lord. Another inconsistency with the thought that this was about the day of the Lord is the assumption that John was transported forward to that great day when the first three chapters of Revelation deal with current and present situations and events in the existing churches. So he doesn't, we don't see him actually catapulted forward into the future until the very first part of chapter 4. So what is that telling us then? Well, very simply, we can consider then that John was in a time of meditation and prayer on the Lord's day. It says that he was in the Spirit. Some have considered this to be in some kind of trance or in some kind of, you know, place where he was just, you know, caught up in, into this rapture with the Lord and all, uh, which is, you know, I don't want to say that the trance part of it, but but simply he was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He, 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 he was uh, being made ready. What was happening was, by the Spirit of God, he was being made ready to receive was what was about to come. Uh, we don't like hearing things... Uh, about what's going to happen in the future. You know, we, we don't. When, when things happen to us in the in the present, like for example, what's happening in Israel today, and some of us are going to go to Israel in about uh, two weeks, and uh, just pray for us. You know, just, you know. So I'm ready to go. I, I love going to Israel, so I, I'll be there. It's okay. Don't worry. Pray for us. But the, the important thing is, you know, sometimes we hear it. Oh, I don't want to hear that. No, 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 it's a, no, no. You know what? We shouldn't be afraid of what we're going to hear or what we're going to see when we look forward. But we have to be made ready. That's why we study the scriptures, because we need to be made ready for what is to come. And something written 2,000 years ago is making us ready for something that's coming up very near in the future. But he was being made ready to receive what was about to come. Man, when God opens our eyes to something, it's a, it's a heavy-duty experience. So when he heard a great voice behind him, as a loud and as, a, and as clear as a trumpet, which I believe the trumpet was actually a shofar, which was a ram's horn. Because John was Jewish. He would hear the trumpet, you know. It's not like in those, in those uh, movies of the 60s, you know, when they used to do, you know, like Ben-Hur and all of that, you know, how they, they the guys with the big long trumpets, and they sound as good as, you know, the you know, New York Philharmonic trumpets. And so, No, man, this was a shofar. This, this was a ram's horn. You, know, you could probably hear that. With, uh, that was not a very good uh, ram's uh, trumpet. Next week, I'll bring out my shofar. If you remind me, I'll bring it out and I'll play it for you. But, it's, uh, you know, he hears that and it's clear. You know, it's the voice of God, but it sounds like that, that trumpet. And at that moment, uh, being made aware that the Lord himself had come down from heaven to be with him. For what reason? To show him things that were to come. The call of the shofar was familiar to the Jewish mindset. It was a call that gathered the tribes together. And it was a call that was sounded every morning to announce the services in the temple. Yes, they went to services every day. When they had the tabernacle and when they had the the temple. They went to services every day. And what John hears is the I am. I am Alpha. Alpha. And Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. The same claim, by the way. The same claim made by God Himself. This is Jesus in Revelation 1. But think about this: Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has wrought and done it? In other words, who has who has fashioned and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am He. What about Isaiah 44, verse 6? Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Or Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am He. I am the first. I I also am the last. I am, I am, I am. That's God's name. So we have to realize that the linkage between the Son and the Father. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am Alpha and Omega. So, again, we have to emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ. For Jesus to be called the first and the last should remind us that he was there at creation and he will bring the creation to its conclusion. Folks, remember the importance of Genesis and Revelation. The bookends of all the Bible. Remember how important it is to know that Genesis was the beginning. Revelation is the consummation. It is the conclusion. It is the summing up of all that God has been giving us as a revelation. So... We can therefore trust Him for help and strength right now when we face our toughest situations and and formidable temptations and tribulations. Persecuted believers have always been drawn to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals to them that despite their awful sufferings, God's plan is unfolding and is right on track. John is then commanded to write what he sees in a book. We will discover that he is reminded to write what he sees eleven more times. In the book of Revelation. Eleven times he's told to write. Why? Why eleven times? Well, because it is too grand of a vision to keep it all to oneself. (laughs) But also he is to make sure that it is sent to the seven churches which were in Asia. He is to make sure that it gets there. Churches to whom John had evidently ministered. And I think also, because John was human, God had to remind him, listen, keep writing this thing. Don't get lazy on me. Keep coming to Wednesday night study. Let me give you one more look at the, the area of Asia Minor, that square up on top there, that uh, shows us... Uh, The seven churches, right there. Notice that the churches are described in a clockwise order. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They're given to us in a clockwise order, beginning at Ephesus, concluding in Laodicea. Kind of giving us a picture of time. And necessity of message. As well as the body of Christ spanning the ages and generations, yet needing the same message in whatever age the church is in. Again, when we get to chapter 2 very soon, we're going to see that every church represents some era of the the church as a whole. We're we're going to look at at, at various and different views in in, in the churches. But we're going to look at each message of, of the churches of Revelation as they apply to our day and our time. So that, that's a, another important thing that we'll deal with later when we get to chapter 2. Let's go on to re- read verses 12 through 16. It says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands, as, as some of your translations may have. Uh, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a, a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth, in his strength. By the way, I, I, I looked up and saw some pictures, you know, some artist renderings of of this of this particular passage, and I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't find one that really would do what the words do. And I think it's important. In what I want to share with you about that here in just a moment. It's quite interesting to me that the very first thing that John saw was not Jesus. Because it tells us that he turned and he saw seven golden candlesticks. Seven lampstands. Now this is no mystery as to what these seven candlesticks represent. For in verse 20... We are told, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. So there's no mystery that the seven candlesticks that uh, John saw were were representative of each of the seven churches. And as I've said previously, the symbols in the Revelation are either immediately identified for you, or they can be found in the Old Testament. So these were immediately identified for us. Why did John see the lampstands before he saw Jesus? Because even though the Lord's countenance was, 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 was like the sun shining in all its strength, he was allowed to see the candlestick. Well, it was indeed to remind us of something. It was to remind us of the purpose of the churches on the earth. It is to remind us of the purpose of the body of Christ, the church on the earth. Why? Because they are to burn brightly as the lights in the, in the world showing forth the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I truly am one who believes that the this the seven golden lampstands or the seven golden candlesticks and we'll see in just a moment are, are very similar to what we see here on this table uh called the menorah y'all can you all see that there's seven seven uh, and actually this is more of of how it was there were not these big long candles that were about this tall y'all might think you know candlesticks you know in in, in 1611 evidently or before 1611 of course they all, they had those big long you know uh, wax kind of candles and so that's you know, how they put candles up in the church. But but listen, this is the way it was. There were cups, large cups. You'll see in just a moment that oil was in, you know, oil was in each of those cups, and and there was wicks that were in the oil, and the wicks were lit, and that's how that's what gave light to the the holy place in the temp in the tabernacle and in the temple. So. You have to understand that I still truly believe that there was that that picture because the seven golden candlesticks was representative, really, of, of the light that was to be given forth of the glory of God within the temple. But for us, it is to give light of the glory of Christ to the world. Look, we see the Lord. We sang about it tonight. We see the Lord, the world sees us. We see the Lord, the world sees us. They only see Jesus, listen carefully, they only see Jesus to the extent He is revealed by our burning brightly for Him. Do you see the importance of burning brightly for Jesus Christ in this world as we look for the day of Christ approaching? As we look for the day of Jesus coming? Do we see the reason that we need to burn brightly for Christ? Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Then he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So consider this. Lampstands or candlesticks, they really don't produce light, do they? They are just the light holders here. This is just a light holder. The church doesn't produce light, but the church is a light bearer, or a light holder. We are to carry the light of Jesus Christ to a dark and a dying world. What we can take comfort in is that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. That's the picture. First he sees the candlesticks, and then he sees Jesus in the midst of the candlesticks. What is that telling us? Oh, what a joy it is to know that Jesus is in the midst of the church. The problem comes when a church removes Christ. When a church denies who he is. When a church denies His deity. When a church denies the cross. When the church denies the blood of Jesus Christ. When a church denies His redemptive work. And thus when He is no longer in their midst. What? The light goes out. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 2. The warnings that Jesus gives to the churches. The warning that Jesus gave to Ephesus. The very first church he speaks to. We'll see that when we we get there. Well, this must be said. The lampstands that John saw were what we call menorahs. They were seven branched lampstands like the one that was in the wilderness, tabernacle of the Jews, and later in the temple of Jerusalem. Do I have a picture? Oh, there it is. It was an oil lamp with wicks in each bowl. It was the duty, by the way, it was the duty of the priest to attend to the menorah night and day. Okay, listen, listen. This is very important. It was the duty of the priest to attend to the menorah, how long? Night and day. Night and day. The light's got to stay on night and day. Got to attend to the light night and day. Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 4. By the way, there's another picture. There, it gives you an idea of the size. That's within the tabernacle. Leviticus 24, verses 1-4 through says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, uh, pure oil, olive beaten, pure oil, olive, beaten, okay. I want to say olive oil, but that's what it says. (laughs) Unto thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Oh, To cause the lamps to burn continually. See, Christians, we we don't take any days off from, you know, we don't set the candle aside. Oh, because I'm going to do this. And then, without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, shall Aaron order it from the beginning unto the morning. Oh, before the Lord continually. It it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. Three times, three times, three times in in this passage, we are told to keep the lamp burning continually. And as I said before, in the New Testament, every believer is considered a priest. Each of us then is charged with keeping our lamp burning brightly for the Lord, so that His church on earth is a veritable beacon or lighthouse, revealing Him to the world. Well, I don't know. Whatever. No, not whatever, man. Come on, Christian. Light the light and bear the light and keep the light burning. All right. One more thing about the churches. <laughs> You're a tough crowd tonight. One more thing about the churches. They are described as golden lampstands. Golden lampstands. Made of a precious metal symbolically. For the church on earth is something precious and cherished by the Lord. The church is precious and cherished by the Lord. I know sometimes we get upset when we see things happening in in so-called churches. And we say, oh my, why is that happening? God knows already. But God also knows those who are faithful. God knows those who stay faithful to His Word. And folks, I, I just got to tell you, I want to do with all my heart, with everything that God gives me, to keep this church faithful to God's Word, faithful to His, to his revelation. But that means you need to keep your heart faithful to those things too. Let's move on to the vision of Jesus. Oh my goodness, this is... Why we're here tonight, isn't it? And in the midst of the seven candlesticks. One, like unto the Son of Man. Very important phrase. We're going to see that someplace else too. One, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So that's, that's up in this, this region here. Okay. Uh, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters and He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. One thing that we must take note of concerning this passage is that we are given we are given as as the Lord gave it to John. John would understand this because when you consider the, the, the Hebrew understanding of things, you have to keep it in what is called Eastern imagery or Oriental imagery. And uh, because so much of, 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 of what, uh, you know, the... Uh, to use the, the proper word the, the growth and the, and the development of the of the Jewish nation you know came actually from the eastern part of you know the uh, the land you know the fertile crescent and all of that you know so there there is the the imagery changes you know when when when, when you introduce the Greeks and the Romans you know Use the Western imagery now, and, and, and Western imagery is really not imagery, by the way. It's really dealing more with philosophy. When you, when you, when you deal with the languages, when you deal with the, the way the languages are written, you know, uh, everything Eastern is primarily visual, primarily... I'm talking about the language. When you see all of the, the, the various things that are written, in, as far as the words and all, uh, you can look at Chinese, Korean, uh, uh, Japanese languages and, and, and others, but, but even Hebrew, it's, it's a very descriptive and image-driven uh, language. So, so we have to have that understanding that this is, you know, when you start talking about the Greek, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with more of the philosophical thought. But here we're still with pictures, with images. So, so, uh, we're given this Eastern or Oriental imagery, but, but by the way, I'm not saying, and I want you to misunderstand me, I'm not saying that John didn't see the vision of Jesus. He did see the vision of Jesus. I'm quite sure that he did. But the point is that the picture is not for the chalk, crayon, or brush. That, that's why I didn't want to just show you a picture of, say, here's Jesus and the seven golden lampstands, because there, there are so many different pictures, and which one's right, which one's not right. You know, we hear words, and then we, you put it onto, onto the canvas or, or onto the paper. Our minds must not rest, in other words, on the symbol, but on that which the symbol represents. And I think that this will help us to understand the, the, the book of Revelation as we're going on. And, and again, we see this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Pictures being painted by the words that are given through the language that God established with the Jewish people. For example, one is not to paint only a mental picture of the robe uh, girded high and reaching to the ground, but, but consider one who occupies a place of high rank and royal power. Do, do, you, do you see that? You know, if all we want to see is, I want to see the gold. Or I want to see, you know, really I want to see that, that, that robe dr- dr- to the ground. And then, you know, the, you know got the, the train of the robe. We want that image. No, but what does it represent? It represents royalty. A high royalty. High rank. High power. Consider the white hair that's mentioned. Shining like the sun, glistening on snow, illustrates what does it illustrate for us? It illustrates divine, heavenly, godly purity. White like wool. Now some people would say, "Well, the first thing I think about is, oh, he's old." Look well, he can't be old. Why can't he not be old? Because he's eternal. So the imagery is for us to see this divine purity, this heavenly purity, this this this, this godly purity. The eyes, as a flame of fire, represent the divine knowledge of the Lord piercing through to the innermost depths of our hearts. The feet, like unto fine brass, represent the ability to tread down all opposition and justice and truth. We know that brass is a symbol of something, don't we? time we see brass, a lot of times it has to do with what? Judgment. There's that co-relation you see. The voice, the voice of Jesus, the voice that that, that, uh, John heard, the voice as, as the sound of many waters reminding John of the roaring waves crashing on the shores of Patmos is a symbol of Christ's irresistible power. The right hand that held the seven stars reveals to us how the angels or the messengers of the churches are under the absolute control and protection of Christ. When you hear about the arm of the Lord, that's what you're dealing with coming from Hebrew imagery, the arm of the Lord, the strength and power of God in control. God in control. That's why we sit here waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, it matters who's on the throne. That's what matters. The sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth is a picture of his word of judgment which can punish and destroy and which none can resist or escape. His countenance, like like the undisturbed, unclouded sun, reveals the heavenly glory and majesty of the one upon which no one can casually gaze. And folks, if we cannot casually gaze upon the Lord, then we are not to casually live our lives for it. We are to live our lives with passion for him. Is it any wonder that at such a vision, John fell at his feet is dead? We'll see that in the next section, but I think it's verse 17. So let me ask this question, I, and I want this question just to, to be something that, that will awaken your heart tonight. What vision of Christ do we bring into this place when we gather to worship him? What vision of Christ do we bring into this place when we gather to worship him? Now You have to understand, we, we come in, we all, we all come in with different things happening in our lives from week to week. And, you know, sometimes we go through tragedies and, and things happen in our, in our families or with people that we know or we love. And, and we come with a, bur- a broken heart, we come with a burdened heart, but we come to the one who can heal the broken heart, don't we? But we still have to come with a vision of that God and of that Christ. But sometimes we come in here, we, we got we got football on our brains. You know? Man, I hope Charlie doesn't go along today, man, because we got to get back to that game. What vision do we have? I don't see Jesus with a football helmet on. I just don't see that. You see how we can kind of mu- muddy our vision when we come here. I want us to come here, you know. And, and the fact is, we need to come here, no matter if we're burdened with with brokenheartedness or sin or whatever it is. This is where God wants us, so that we can catch the vision of the God who is able to change us and to be all that He wants to be for us. For example. That's the question. I should have put it up earlier. (laughs) Jesus, our great high priest. Do we come with a vision of Jesus as our great high priest? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Hey, that's what John said. One like unto the Son of Man, he says, but, but here Daniel says, One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which, that which shall not be destroyed Listen, we're looking at someone there that Daniel's describing as someone in royalty, but it's also in robes of priestly service. If we compare this vision with what we see of Jesus in the book of Revelation, we have to keep those things together. High priestly, because, God, because he is our great high priest. King, because he is our king. And we have been made what? What? A kingdom of priests. God is consistent, folks. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, which means to help them that are tempted. But he is a merciful and faithful high priest. But in, in chapter 4, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. L- listen to this. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's the vision that we need of Jesus when we come into this place. He is our great high priest. He's here to help us. He is here to heal us because he's touched. He's been touched with everything that we've gone through and yet without sin. And then secondly, Jesus is is to be seen as, as arrayed in holiness and purity. This is the vision that we need to have of Jesus when we come here. Look, look at it, uh, Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But I like what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, he says, but... You were redeemed, in other words, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus is not only our great high priest, he is arrayed, arrayed in holiness and in purity. And we need to see him as that. We need to see Jesus as the righteous judge. Hebrews 4.13. Now take down these references and look them up later. I want you to see these things because I I want the vision to be clear. Because this is what we saw here in in, in verses 13 through 16 of Revelation 1. Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus, the righteous judge, remember eyes as a flame of fire that cut right through our own hearts. There's also Hebrews 12.29. Whoa, hey, get back here. Where did that one go? I think I missed it. Hebrews 12.29 very simply says, For our God is a consuming fire. So, you know, there is that understanding of the purpose of Jesus as being the righteous judge with the eyes of flame of fire. He is the one who consumes. He's the judge. But we are to see him also. Okay, now. As the voice. Nope, I'm missing one. There it is. The refiner's fire. Exodus 38 verse 3. And he made all the vessels of the altar, the pots and the shovels and the basins and the flesh hooks and the firepans. All the vessels thereof made he of brass. And of course we talked about brass being again a symbol of judgment. His feet were like unto fine brass. So Jesus is the refiner's fire. Because Israel's altar of sacrifice was made of brass. The brazen altar. That's why it's called the brazen altar because it was made of brass. It was the strongest metal of the ancient world known for its permanence and its stability. So, you know, that, that's, that gives a reflection of, of the judgment of God, that it's, there's, some, there's some permanence to it. But there's also some permanence to what he's, what he's giving forth to, to cleanse. I mean, because this was having to do with the sacrifices that were brought to him, representing the sins of the people. He took care of them and, and, and he judged those things rather than judged the people when they, when they brought the gift with their heart. And then Jesus is the voice of power and authority. Well, I keep going the wrong direction. There it is. Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. It says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. I'm going to give you some homework assignment. You need to read all of Psalm 29. Because from beginning to end, it says so much that, that uh, relates to what we're talking about tonight. And it goes on with talking about the voice of the Lord. So, but, it, but it reflects the voice of power and authority. And then, of course, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Seven stars in his right hand. He's the head of the church. Uh, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And then, Jesus, the two-edged sword. The vision that John saw of the sword was not of a sword that's mentioned in the scriptures called the makaria, M-A-C-H-A-R-I-A, makaria. The makaria was the small dagger that was used in hand-to-hand combat. If I'm not mistaken, I believe that was the kind of knife or, or dagger that Paul had—I'm sorry, Peter had—when he cut off that one servant's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. It was a small, small dagger. What this is is the romphaya, romphaya, the two-edged sword. It was a large, broad sword. That was hung, or I'm sorry, that was swung to cut down opponents. Very heavy sword, long, blade, broad, two edged, and it was swung in one direction, you just come back in the other direction, and you would sweep with the purpose of cutting down opponents. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews it it mentions a two edged sword. The two edged sword of Jesus for us is one that cuts and then heals. It cuts. And it heals. Please remember that. In another vision in Revelation, John describes in chapter 19, verse 15, which we have here, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, which is a romphiah, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. This is the sword of judgment, and the words that Jesus speaks will one day cut down those who are in rebellion against him. Please look, if you will, at John 12, verses 47 and 48. If any man hear my words, notice, hear my words, and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, he's speaking of his first coming. Please remember this. He's speaking of his first coming there. But notice verse 48, he says, He that rejecteth me And receiveth not my words has one that judges him the word that I have spoken. Y'all see that? Then he says, the same shall judge him in the last day. We reject the words of Christ. We will be judged by the word of Christ. Lastly, and we're done here for tonight, Jesus, the glory of God, we can say, Jesus, the glory of God the Father. But fully, Jesus, the glory of God. In Matthew 17, verse 2, it says and was, that Jesus was transfigured before his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which when we go to Israel, we'll see as Mount Hermon. And it says, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So even while on this earth... For a, for a brief time, Jesus revealed the glory of God. So understand this, that we cannot approach Him in our own righteousness, but the righteousness that Christ has imputed into our lives by faith. This is what allows us to stand before God. It's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. So the Jesus that John saw Is the real Jesus. The Jesus that John saw is the Jesus that lives and reigns in heaven today. That's the Jesus that John saw. We can see at times how people will draw Jesus according to their own views of things. Jesus, meek and mild. Well, oh, he was meek and mild. But they misrepresent what, mis- meek- what meek and mild means. He was humble. He was gentle. But there were times when he wasn't so gentle. There were times when he upset the tables of the money changers in the temple. And to carry a cross beam the way he did for as long as he did to the cross and to hang on that cross for three hours... It takes a man that's not meek and mild. It takes a man that's powerful. Yet he died. Which was also powerful. Because if he didn't die, we wouldn't have the opportunity to have eternal life. This is the real Jesus that John saw. This is the Jesus that we look forward to seeing when he comes for us. I will come again and gather you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. What hope. Let's continue to keep our eyes on Jesus. Shall we stand? Let's go ahead and stand and let's pray. We're ready.